Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. You've made the best decision you could possibly make by tuning your ear to the Word of God. I would love to invite you to stay updated with us on Facebook and YouTube. You can find us at Revival House Church. Father, bless this person and let the seed of the Word multiply 30, 60, and 100 times over in Jesus' name. And so this is something that's been really fresh in my heart, and I'll explain why. But tonight, uh, and this will definitely be a series that will turn into at least a couple of Wednesdays in a row, in a row, and it's this, is God a Republican or a Democrat? Is God a Republican or a Democrat? I want you to hear me. There's a lot of people that just by the title of this message alone, the religious devil inside of them is getting so angry. He's like, you know, sitting there, how in the world could you ever talk about, why would you name it that? That's so rude. That's so offensive. And I can tell you it's because the devil doesn't want people to know this. Uh, Reasons to teach this. Here's a few reasons. Number one, you need to understand that right now, the Supreme Court is voting to do away with Roe versus Wade, basically to end or to make it not a national law, uh, but to outlaw abortion in the United States of America, to end Roe versus Wade. That's happening right now. In fact, they already voted, and it already has been confirmed because of a leak. If you haven't read any of that, there was a, a, a meeting, and they talked about it. They already have the votes to end it. It's going to be finalized in June, but somebody leaked that, that basically the votes have already been put in, and it's going to be overturned, and it's been in effect since the 1970s, so it's been in effect for uh, 50 years, Roe versus Wade, and so abortion in the United States of America will no longer be nationally legal anymore. Hallelujah. Well, here's the thing, though, is that that a private, you know, vote before it's, it's publicized has never been leaked before from the Supreme Court. And so what's happening right now, they leak that information because what they're wanting to do is to incite riots, violence. They're wanting the far left to get so flustered and frustrated that they begin to just basically do what we saw a couple summers ago, cities being torn down, come and protest, and to make these judges fear for their lives. And so my prayer, if you saw my Facebook post is the devil does such a good job, and he tries so hard trying to convince the world that America, the majority of America, are far-left liberals, and it's not true. The majority of America does not side with killing innocent life in the womb. The majority of America does not side with over-sexualizing our children. The majority of America does not subscribe to these ideas and theories and ideologies. And I pray, you know, my prayer has been this. The Bible says that the trap that you set for others, you'll fall in yourself. And I've been praying. I said, Lord, obviously the devil's tried to set a trap for these Supreme Court justices to intimidate them, to get them into fear, but I pray that the exact opposite would happen. I pray that true America would show her face and that the world would hear her voice. Hallelujah. 
that you're going to have a group of people screaming and shouting and rioting that this is absolute insanity. How could they ever do this? But the world's going to look and see that true America stands behind this. Hallelujah. And so that's happening right now. This is major. And the reality is most churches won't touch on, on these subjects with, one, with a 100-foot pole. They don't want to offend people. They don't want to step on toes. They don't want to lose membership. They don't want to be seen in their communities as the radical person. They just want to be accepted by all men. And what's the result of this? I was watching a video this week that was called Progressive Christianity versus Conservative Christianity. That's what the title of this video was, Progressive Christianity versus Conservative Christianity. To hear the position of these believers was absolutely shocking. What this looked like was everybody was standing on a wall, and they had a bunch of empty seats, and somebody said, sit down if you believe that a woman should have a right to choose, and you, you agree with abortion. And about six or seven of the ten people came and sat down in a chair. These weren't people of different religions. These were people that subscribed to Christianity. Come and sit down in the chair if you believe uh, that, that the church should institute and recognize homosexuality, that pastors should be marrying homosexual couples in their church. Again, about six or seven of the ten came and sat down, and then they would begin to debate why I believe that. And I'm telling you, the things that I heard, it absolutely shocked me. In fact, some of the people that were taking these positions, there was one man that he was uh, in a relationship. He was married to another man, and he was some sort of minister, some sort of pastor. And the positions that I heard, the biblical positions, they were, you know, the things that I heard coming out of these people's mouths, I came away completely convinced that people are not being taught what the Bible says on these subjects. And it just really stirred me because I've always held the belief, but I saw the fruit. I saw the fruit of why we have to get away from 65 minutes of worship with 35 minutes of announcing, announcements and then a 15-minute, 20-minute message. That's what church has really come to. The Word has to be the most important priority when we gather together. People are word deficient. People are not being taught what the Bible says on these subjects. And so people can say, well, I think this. You have your thoughts. I have my thoughts. You have your beliefs. I have my beliefs. But ultimately what I want to do is what does God say? What does the Bible say about this? A lot of people don't want to get political from the pulpit. They say, well, we don't want to talk about these issues because we don't want to turn people away from Jesus. We don't want to turn people away from the gospel. But I want you to ask this question, who is Jesus? People say, I don't want to address these issues because I don't want to turn people away from Jesus. And they think that Jesus is just this neutral person that has no opinion about anything. When in reality, I think that if when a lot of people stand before him, they're going to see that the Jesus that they imagine in their mind is not the true resurrected living person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 8 through 9, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same 
yesterday, today, and forever. So do not be attracted by strange new ideas. Your strength comes from God's grace, not from rules about food, which don't help those who follow them. Well, I don't want to talk about politics because I just want to make the focus on Jesus. I don't want to turn people away from Jesus. But again, what you're actually doing is just creating this. It's called universalism is the theological term. And it's basically that you can make God whatever you want him to be. God can be whatever you concoct in your mind. However, you know, somebody thinks, well, this is how I think God sees it. Well, this is how I feel God sees it. But the reality is, is God clearly defines and shows us where he stands on these subjects in his word. I'll give you an example. Let's say hypothetically, you have two men engaging in homosexuality. They come into a church to have a marriage ceremony. And they get married, and people do this kind of stuff, and they'll say things like, man, I just had a vision of Jesus rejoicing in heaven. I just saw it in my spirit. You know, they'll get spiritual. I just saw it in my spirit. As we were standing here making this union with one another, we love each other. You love whoever you love. I just saw Jesus dancing and rejoicing in heaven. Can I tell you something? That's a God that you've concocted in your mind. That's not the God of the Bible. Hallelujah. The God these two hypothetical men subscribe to is not the God of the Bible. He doesn't change. He, he's the same as he was in his word. And any position that he took in his word, he still takes today. Amen. So I'm going to begin to give you today, I'm going to give, begin to give you three of the eight traditional views held by the Republican and Democrat Party. And then most importantly, I'm going to tell you what the Bible says or what the Bible's take is on these subjects. Some of these issues will be more major than others. So again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the eight traditional views that the, Democrat, the Democratic Party holds and the eight traditional views that the Republican Party holds, and then I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. Hallelujah. Uh, and again, as we go through some of these issues, some of them are going to be more important than others. For example, we'll talk about next week immigration and abortion. Well, those two don't weigh on the same scale. We can kind of have different views. I'll tell you what the Bible clearly says, and you could say, well, you know, I may not subscribe to that as strongly, but those two views hold different weight, abortion versus immigration, amen? So as we go through some of these, you're going to see that some of these are absolutely more weighty than others are. I want you to keep this in mind as well. As we talk about, is God a Republican or a Democrat, and we go through these traditional views, uh, and let me say this as well, I know that, ca- that certain candidates differ. Just because one Democratic representative believes one thing doesn't mean every one of them believe all of, uh, every one of them unanimous, unanimously believe the same thing about every subject, Right? So, but what I am going to do is just give you the traditional stances that, that here's the dividing line. This is where the left stands. This is where the right stands. What are those traditional views in, in light of what the Bible says or compared to what the Bible says? All right. And so I want you to understand this. Many of you are familiar. Revelation 13, 16 through 17. I want you to also think about these views in comparison with this verse. In Revelation 13, we see 
the government that the Antichrist will set up when he's on this earth. And so we have to constantly think, where does God stand on these subjects? Well, you'll see that many of these are actually just setting the stage for the government that the Antichrist will rule from or, or, or rule as while he's on this earth. Revelation 13, 16 through 17, he required everyone, small and great, rich or poor, free or slave, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. No one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Well, we see very clearly that when the Antichrist steps into his place of power, that however the system of the world is set up, he will be able to require, at least where his little reign is, he'll be able to require everyone, say everyone, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And, and he will obviously have the authority to dictate what is bought, what is sold, that you can't buy, you can't sell, you can't interact in society without this mark. And not only that, but he'll also have the military power in order to back those positions. Because how can you require? If you don't have military power, you can't require anybody to do anything. So you got to have a one-world government. You have to have a one-world uh, currency. And you have to have a one-world military power. You see, you're going to see how things are setting the stage for that, and it'll help you as a Christian to understand what side should I stand on. So let's start with number one. Number one, I'm going to give you three of the eight traditional views. Number one, strong government versus weak government. Strong government versus weak government. The Democrat view... The Democrat holds what is known as a strong government position. Basically what it means is more control. Say more control. They're more hands-on. They think the government should have their hands more in people's lives, more in people's decisions, more on what people do with their money, more on how people regulate and operate their businesses. That's their position. Therefore, more government control. They, they, they do it in the name of we want to help people do what they won't do for themselves. Right? It's all in the name of of the low class or the middle class. So they say we're basically trying to help what people, they say what they can't do for themselves, but in reality, in most cases, it's what the, they won't do for themselves. It's not what they can't do, it's what they won't do. Because I want to tell you, in, in all actuality, especially if you get a hold of, of the gospel, there's not a whole lot of things in the United States that you can't do. Come on, somebody. We got to get out of that victim mindset. Well, because you're black, you can't do X, Y, Z. That is horse poo-poo from hell. It's not true. Because you're a woman, you can't do these things. Because you're a woman, you can't, make a, you can't have a job making $100,000 a year. False. False. Right? So let's just even think about that. That's, that's the democratic position, the strong government, more control, help people do what they won't do for themselves. Does that, how does that compare with what we just read in Revelation 13, that he required everyone, small and great, rich or poor, free or slave, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead, and no one could buy or sell anything without that mark? Does that sound like strong government control or loose government control? Sounds like strong government control. This is the Republican stance on strong 
strong government versus weak government. Republicans believe in a limited or small, what they call a small government. It's really the view people govern themselves and the, peop- and the government interferes as little as possible. Not that there's no government because government, we'll get into this, but government is from God. God instituted government. Government's not a bad thing. Government, when done right, is a good thing. But this is where the Republican Party traditionally, I say traditionally, now, again, not every single candidate is going to just fall into line with all of this stuff. Different people kind of fall in different areas of the spectrum, but just traditionally. They say people should be able to govern their own lives, their own money, their own businesses, and we should interfere as little as possible. Not no government, just freedom. Okay, so let's go ahead and take what position now is God, what position would God weigh on on these two subjects? Here's a question. Is God hands-on or hands-off according to the Scripture? Would God, in his government, according to the Bible, rule more as a strong government or a more loose government? Well, let's look what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 30, 19. Today, I have given you the choice, say choice, between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice, say choice, that you make, say you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. Say, choose life. So God gives people a choice. He doesn't make anybody do anything. So I want you to say, choose life. Next week, we're going to get to the abortion issue. What do you need to understand? What does God choose every time? God chooses life every time. Hallelujah. <laughs> So people could take this verse, though, and say, well, God gives people a choice, so does that mean that God would be pro-choice? That's what they call pro-abortion. They call it pro-choice, pro-a woman's right to choose. But I want you to understand that in theory, you know, there's a difference between giving people a right to choose and legalizing something. I want you to understand this, that everybody in this room, you have a right to do, you could technically choose to do whatever you wanted to do. If Miss Kim said, you know what, I just got a wild hair, I think I want to walk outside with a Louisville slugger and I want to take it, I want to take it to Miss Jane's nice Yukon out there and I want to tear it up. Does does Miss Kim, could she choose to do that? Well, she could choose to do that. But is there consequences for those actions? Absolutely, there's consequences for those actions. And so it's not, you know, it's not this idea of we're not going to let women choose. No, you can choose, but we can't stand on the position of legalizing that and saying this is okay, this can go without consequence, because fundamentally, we'll get to the abortion issue, the, the Republican Party stands on the side that life begins at, at conception. That the moment that a child is conceived, life has begun, and therefore it must be protected as a human life. You can choose to go to some foreign place or go in some back room and do whatever the heck that you want, but there will be consequences for taking a life because it is, in fact, a life. And we cannot stand 
for innocent life. You know, the Bible says he, he detests injustice. To kill a living being that has no ability to defend itself, that has no voice, that has no right, to just say, I don't want you and you're an inconvenience to my life, so I'm going to choose to take your life because I don't want the effects on my body. Let me tell you, God hates that. That's injustice. That's injustice. That's not right. We'll get to that issue, though. But So God gives people a choice. Say a choice. Look at Proverbs 1, 20 through 25. Turn your Bibles there. Proverbs 1, 20 through 25. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She cries in the public square. She calls to the crowds along the main street, to those gathered in front of the city gate. How long, you simpletons, will you insist on being simple-minded? How long, you mockers, relish your mocking? How long will you fools hate knowledge? Come and listen to my counsel. I'll share my heart with you and make you wise. I called to you so often, but you wouldn't come. I reached out to you, but you paid no attention. You ignored my advice and rejected the correction that I offered you. Does God force people to do things? No, God does not force people to do anything. 2 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, This is talking about the second coming, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering or is being patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The Bible says it's not God's will that anybody go to hell, that anybody perish, but yet the reality is he gives every single person a choice, and what you do with that choice is your decision. If God sovereignly dictated and made people do things, Adam and Eve would have never sinned in the garden. But yet, he gave them the choice, right? So is God hands-on or is God hands-off? Does God operate in strong, more control, and make people do what they won't do for themselves? Or is he limited, small, as far as small, hands-off, give people the right to govern themselves and interfere little? Yes, say yes. Hallelujah. All right, number two. Again, that's not as a weighty of a subject, but I just want you to see that. Number two, economy. This is the traditional view. If y'all will, in the future, too, make that way bigger on the screen. Economy, the traditional view, view. The Democrat traditionally holds the view of this, tax the rich more, lower taxes for the middle and lower class, and then use the money that you get from taxing the rich to boost spending on the lower class. So basically take from the upper class, tax them as you make more money, you pay more in taxes, and then what we'll do with those taxes is we'll use it to to boost spending on the lower class, giving them benefits. Raise the minimum wage so that everyone can have equality in life. Republicans hold the position traditionally of what's called free market competition. Free market, say free market. And it'll explain that in just a moment, but it basically, they also believe this, lower taxes on the upper class 
so that they will invest in American business, thus providing jobs for Americans. Right? Instead of taxing the rich more because of their success, why don't we give them tax cuts and tax breaks so that they can reinvest in bringing companies, bringing uh, factories, bringing jobs to America? They believe in no penalty for success through taxation. They believe every American should own, invest, build, and prosper. They believe this, it boils down to this, that a company should fail or succeed on their actions and merits, not the government intruding. Whether you fail or you succeed, let it be by your own action and your own merits, not because of government intrusion. Amen. This includes not allowing the government to pick and choose winners of the market. You know, you see that a lot in this, in this more uh, controlled economy that's not an f- open, free market. They pick and choose off of personal interest or agenda. I'll give you an example of this. Did you know Pfizer, say Pfizer. Pfizer came out with a vaccine. Pfizer report, a, a, a report just dropped where they reported a profit of $7.86 billion in the first quarter of 2022. Say profit. That's, that's not talking about just that's what they brought in revenue. That's what they profited after expenses, $7.86 billion in the first quarter. If you know anything about business, if you run a business, you file your taxes quarterly. I think there's four quarters in a year. Am I correct? So just in the first quarter of 2022, Pfizer has already profited $7.86 billion. Why? Because the government makes contracts with these people and then tries to force things on people through legislation. Well, we're going to pass legislation that basically forces, like the whole vaccine mandate, trying to force that, pushing people in that direction, pushing it up from the top. What does it do? It's putting money in the Pfizer executives' pockets. I'm just giving you an example of this. Suppressing some to promote others. Y'all remember when the hydroxychloroquine was was going around and during the, the pandemic, people were saying, doctors were saying, we have these things that we've used for malaria, that we've used that's very inexpensive and it's very effective, but yet government officials began to shut it down even though it actually produced results and it was actually cheap to the consumer. Why would they shut it down? Well, there was an agenda because it didn't go with their agenda and it didn't put money in the right pocket. Amen. You ever wonder how the net worth of a politician goes majorly up while they're in office? Give you an example. Again, Y'all, I'm telling you, I'm not speaking this from my flesh or from a hateful spirit. I'm just trying to help you understand some facts. Barack Obama's net worth when he went in as president was under $1 million, was underneath $1 million. When he came out of office, his net worth was $70 million. Okay? The presidential salary is $400,000 per year. How do you go in eight years from under $1 million to $70 million? with a salary of $400,000. Those numbers don't add up. Passing legislation that's backdoor putting money in people's pockets. Okay, that's what a controlled economy looks like. Are y'all with me? 
Sorry that we have to teach things in church that the schools won't teach to our kids anymore. What does the Bible, what does the Bible say about these subjects? Well, let's first look at what does the Bible say about taxes. I'm going to show you something the Lord showed me. This is in Matthew 17, 24 through 27. On their arrival in Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and asked him, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, Peter replied. Then he went into the house. But before he had a chance to speak, Jesus asked him, What do you think, Peter? Do kings tax their own people or the people they have conquered? Peter replied, They tax the people they have conquered, Peter replied. Well, then Jesus said, The citizens are free. What was he talking about? The citizens, the citizens of a nation, the citizens that belong to that king, aren't taxed. They're not, you know, in the way, in a righteous society, they're not taxed. The king taxes people that he's conquered. However, we don't want to offend them, so go down to the lake and throw in a line and open the mouth of the first fish you catch and you'll find a large silver coin. Take it and pay the tax for the both of us. Just get this revelation. Jesus said a king doesn't tax his own people, only the people he has conquered. Hmm. So if we are taxed, if we are taxed, if there's a form of government, if there's a group, if there's a party that's heavier on taxation, then we're viewed as a conquered people, not a people that they're there to serve. Amen. What does that show you, Jesus? He said, well, we'll pay the tax. We'll do it. But you're free. You should be free. You should be free is what he's saying here. I'm not telling you don't to, not to pay your taxes. I'm just telling you how God says a righteous government should work. You don't get taxed frontwards, backwards, and sideways. You get taxed when you're born. You get taxed when you die. You get taxed what you make. You get taxed what you, what you spend. You go to the store. You pay tax. You go get gas. You pay tax. You go, you go pay state tax. That's where I was from. We had a state tax. We had an income tax. <laughs> it's just absolutely insane. Well, whoever's pushing that views us as a people that are conquered and controlled, not as a free people. Our founding fathers understood that. Man, they revolted over a tea tax. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they were getting taxed without proper representation. They're saying the English are taxing us, and we don't have anybody from our own voicing, standing for us, voicing what we think, what we say. Guess what? Because England thought of the United States. Hey, that's our territory. That's a conquered people. We've conquered them. Okay, so that's where the Bible stands on taxes. I'm not telling you not to pay your tax. I'm just telling you that, that that's how God sees it. We should be free from taxation. Amen. Now, if I go over there as a, to Europe and I'm not a citizen, I don't contribute in all of these ways, and I'm over there reaping benefits from them, then, yeah, okay, I should, I should pay something to contribute. But really, fundamentally, the right side really believes that when America isn't penalized through taxation and is able to invest 
and grow and prosper and provide jobs and pay people better jobs because they're making more money and not having to outsource everything to all of these other countries that it brings prosperity to this nation. Hallelujah. All right, let's look at this position. Does the Bible teach that if you do nothing, you get equal reward? Or does the Bible teach that low productivity gives you the same reward as high productivity? Is that what the Bible teaches? Look over at Matthew 25. Remember, we just said the traditional view is let's tax the rich. Let's tax those that have been successful. Let's tax those that are experiencing success. And let's give it to the, to the lower income or middle income people to distribute some equality among them. I'm just asking the simple question, is that how God said that his government and system operates? Matthew 25, 14 through 30. I'm going to read through this fast for the sake of time. I need to get moving. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. Then he left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money to earn five more. The servant with the two bags of silver went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received one bag of silver dug a hole, put it in the ground, and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. Well, I want you to think about that. How they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted five bags of silver came forward and with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest. I have earned five more. Say, I have earned five more. I put it to work. I invested it. I multiplied it. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest. I've earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Another, uh, another gospel account of the same parable, it doesn't say many more responsibilities. It says, I'll give you a hypothetical here. It says, you invested five bags of silver, so you get five more. You get 10 cities as your reward. Oh, you invested two, now you get four cities as your reward. So let me ask you this question. In light of the scripture, did the one that invest two bags and multiply it two times over, did they get the same reward as the one that multiplied it five times over, according to the Bible? No, they didn't. No, they didn't. And it says this, then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid so I, I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. Wow. 
Take from the one that did nothing and actually give it to the one that did the most. That's a very different picture of God than what most people have. Don't shout me down tonight. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they'll have an abundance. But for those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So let's ask the question, does the Bible teach that if you do nothing, you get an equal reward? Is that what the Bible teaches? No. Or does the Bible teach that if you do a little bit, you get the same reward as somebody that was high in productivity? No. The Bible says also, we'll see, we'll see this in Luke 6, 38. I'll go ahead and turn there. I guess I didn't give you that reference, Antonio. I'm sorry. I hope you kids are listening to this tonight. Luke 6, 38. It says this. Give and you will receive your gift will return to you full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more running over and poured into your lap. The amount that you give will determine the amount that you get back. God doesn't just equally distribute reward. No, he said what you do will determine what you receive. Amen. So now here's, let's ask this question. Does the Bible instruct us to support those who refuse to work? Look at 2 Thessalonians 3. Say refuse to work. Second Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. Now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live an idle life and don't follow the tradition they receive from us. Hey, stay away. That's a pretty harsh command from the Apostle Paul. And he didn't just say, hey, this is my suggestion. He said, I command this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from a believer who lives an idle life. Well, what is a person that lives an idle life? He's about to define it. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night and we should, that we should not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command, those unwilling to work will not eat. I want you to hear, say, idle lives. What is a person that lives an idle life? In Bible context, it's a person that is unwilling to work, refuses to work. I'm not going to work. What did Paul say? Well, you should just show them the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you, you know, they don't want to work. That's okay. You don't have to. Let me just come and give you all this stuff anyways. No, he said if you don't want to work, you don't get to eat. That's a little different than what most Christians are taught or most Christians their idea of who God is. They don't really have that idea. They think that God's this, this socialist that just evenly distributes everything to everybody no matter what you do. No, you don't work, you don't eat. 
Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work, there it is again, and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. Take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. So Paul literally says, I'm giving you this command. I want you to read it to the whole church, and I want you to look at who refuses to do it. Look for the person that says, eh, you know what? No, I think I'm good. I have, I have my faith. You have your faith. Let's agree to disagree. He said, take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter and stay away from them so that they will be ashamed. Well, how many of you know there's no shame? Well, I mean, there's no sin that God won't forgive if you repent. But I'm telling you guys, sometimes, sometimes a person needs to feel ashamed so that they'll, they will repent. Well, brother, don't be ashamed. No, you should be ashamed. You should humble yourself and you should receive from the Lord Jesus Christ forgiveness. But change because that, that thing's an abomination to the Lord. Amen. Take note of those who refuse to do what we say. Stay away from them so that they'll be ashamed. But do not think of them as enemies. You don't say, oh, I hate you. You're horrible. You're nasty. You're ugly. You're rotten. No, don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would a brother or a sister. So does the Bible instruct us to support those who refuse to work? No, it does not. You need to understand this biblical principle, refusing to work produces Poverty, that's the way that it works in the government of God. Proverbs 6, 9 through 11, but you lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, and the folding of the hands to rest, then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm going to tell you, you can't even begin to prosper until you get in line with God's word. How do you get in line with God's word? Well, you got to work. Amen. Put your hand to the plow. So again, this idea, let's penalize. You know, just think about that. Is that what God said to the servant that multiplied five bags over and then God gave him all ten bags? Did he say, to the one that did nothing... Let me take half, why don't we take a few bags from the one with ten and a few bags from the one with four and then let's give, let's give it to the one that did nothing so that there's some equality amongst the people. Is that what God said? Absolutely not. That's not how it works in the government of God. So let's ask this question then. So the Bible does not instruct us to support those that refuse to work. So who does the Bible instruct us to support? James 1.27 says, pure, genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Say orphans and widows. Basically, here's the picture that it's painting. People that can't. Who should Christians be supporting? Not people that refuse to work and do anything. People that literally can't. An orphan has no parents. In this context, there was no CPS. There was no organization. There were kids. Their parents died, and they're living out on the street. They can't take care of themselves. The church should step up and take care of people that can't take care of themselves. 
You got an 80-year-old woman that's lived her whole life. Well, she can't go out in the coal mining field for 19 hours a day and, and bust her butt and bust her back. That's, an, that, that's just not going to happen. So the church should take care of those that can't take care of themselves. So there is a form of government where we do give generously, where we do provide with this thought of people that genuinely can't. If somebody's paralyzed, if somebody has a genuine disability, we don't want them starving out on the street and to die in the cold. We should be taking care of these people. But that's very different from this idea of let's take from those that are successful and give to those that are refusing to do anything. So the Bible instructs us to support people that can't. And also, people, you help a brother or sister in need. But there's a difference between somebody that's, that's in a hardship versus somebody who's refusing. That's why I wanted you to see that word, refusing to work. I don't have to work. God's told me, I'm, guys, I'm telling you, we've ran people out of this church because I've had conversations with men where I said, you need to go to work because their wives were at work. And they said, you know what? The Lord told me that that's not really my time. That's not really my place. That's not what I should be doing. And then I hear from the youth kids that they're at home playing video games. And I, I confront it. Hey, let me tell you, the Bible says that's not okay. Don't tell me that it's God's will that your wife's out busting her hump while you're sitting in a lazy boy doing nothing. That's absolutely not okay according to the word of God. What do people do? Oh, they get offended and they leave. That's what the scripture says. Come on. Are you all with me tonight? So we support orphans and widows, but even at that, look at 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 18. There's qualifications still. Even to be supported by the church in the New Testament, you had to meet these qualifications. 1 Timothy 5. Nine through eighteen. No, it says a true widow, say a true widow, is a woman who is truly alone in this world and has placed her hope in God. Let me tell you guys something. You know, if you get a family that comes in and they well, they're in their forties and they, they you know, there's a man in the house. And she said, well, we need our electric bill paid. We need this. We need that. The church can't biblically put them on monthly support. Why? It's because that person's not truly alone and incapable. It's just a refusal. I don't want to do that. So what should actually happen is biblical correction is, no, you need to go get your butt to work. Hallelujah. Because you can a true widow is someone who's truly alone in this world and has placed her hope in God. She prays night and day asking God for his help. But the widow who lives only for pleasure is spiritually dead even while she lives. Give these instructions to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers." Every, I'll say this, you know, every person, you have a responsibility to your family. If you're men in this room, boys coming up, listen to me, you have a responsibility to your family. As your parents get older, you have a responsibility to your parents. 
And it's something that's not really teached and, and it's taught, but in the Jewish culture, the parents took care of their children. The parents gave their children an inheritance, and then the children took care of their parents. You know that? You, you, know, you understand that, the, the, that you see that all the time. You have these people. They're doing great. Man, making 150 k a year, and then their parents are living off government assistance, trying to scrape together milk and eggs, can't eat. That, that's, that's detestable before the sight of God. In fact, the Bible, rebuked, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees that said, I can't give to my parents because I've already vowed to give this gift to the Lord. Jesus said, you're a hypocrite, and you do that in the name of false religion. That's not the heart of God. You need to help your parents. I pray all the time. I say, Lord, take me to the place when I turn about 40 years old that I just tell my parents, hey, you don't got to worry about anything the rest of your life. I'm going to take care of you. Praise God. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to happen. <laughs> it's working right now. Praise you, Jesus. So it says, those that refuse. Let's see here. Where was I at? It says, Verse 9, a widow who is put on the list for support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old and was faithful to her husband. Say a woman. Doesn't say anything about a man in here, does it? Well, God doesn't really see genders. No, God actually expects men to do certain things. I believe that. I believe wholeheartedly that the roles of a man and the roles of a woman are very different. It says, so she must be at least 60 years old and have been faithful to her husband. Guys, I mean, just according to the Bible, if you have a woman that's 57 and cheated on her uh, on two past husbands, you know, is, does she qualify to be a true widow? No, according to the Bible. You say, well, that seems really harsh. But that's, it's God. He's, he's, he is supreme. He is God. Who am I to argue with what the Lord has said? If I begin to argue and say, well, I actually thought God was different, I'm getting into universalism and I'm making up a God and not worshiping the true living God for who he is. This is what he has said. She must be well respected by everyone because of the good that she has done. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers and served other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? The younger widows should not be on the list because their physical desires will out, out, uh, overpower their devotion to Christ and they will want to remarry. Let me tell you this. The Bible basically says that if you're able to get remarried, you should. Or choose to live a life of celibacy, which Paul said was okay. You can choose to be single, but marriage is a gift from God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. So basically what the Bible was saying is that if you were a widow on the list and that you started getting support from the church and then you got married, you'd be breaking, you'd be stepping outside of what God ordained. You shouldn't have a husband that can support you and be receiving from, you know, help from the church at the same time. Then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge, and if they are on the list, they will learn to be lazy 
Wow, God does not like laziness and will spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business and talking about things that they shouldn't. So does God say church support widows so that they can sit around and be lazy and do nothing? Nope, God does not condone laziness. I don't know how old you get. You can retire. Hallelujah, praise God, but you should never be doing nothing. So I advise these younger widows to marry again and have children, and to take care of their own homes. Say their own homes. Does the Bible say go out there and work and make it happen for your husband? No, it says women. Women do have an assigned role. And I truly believe in my whole heart, and I don't speak condemnation over anybody, but my faith early on from this type of revelation was set that I don't want my wife to go to work. I want my wife raising my children, and the Lord will provide through me. Because... The whole system is just so, the Babylonian system. Let's take the parents out of the household. Let's get the kid in public education. Let's get the kid in daycare at 6 o'clock in the morning, and then they're at school all day long, and then they're in after-school program till 5 o'clock, and then they come home and their parents are so tired, and their mom talks to them for an hour and a half, maybe, cooks some dinner, goes to bed. You do it all again. And what's happening? Children are being indoctrinated, and they're not being raised by their parents with biblical values. And so, it says, Then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them. For I am afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. If a woman who is a believer has relatives who are widows, she must take care of them and not put the responsibility on the church. If you have children, if you have family, if you have and somebody's in need, it shouldn't just be. The Bible says that, you know, because God cares about People, he cares about families. He wants restoration. He wants righteousness. The true conversation in some situations should be, hey, 30-year-old son or 30-year-old daughter, why don't you get your butt in line and take care of your parents? Well, we don't like that. We'll go somewhere that doesn't tell us that. Yeah, and you'll stand before God and be judged according to this word, not what you thought. So it says... The church then can care for the widows who are truly alone. Elders who do their work should be paid very well, respected and paid very well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. In another place it says those who work deserve their pay. Man, that's a good line. Those who work deserve their pay. So does God with with a with a system that penalizes people for working hard and doing well no he doesn't let's penalize people through taxation no those who work deserve their pay hallelujah if you want to work your, and bust your buns and and serve the lord and and grow a business where you're making two million dollars a year you should make two million dollars a year you shouldn't make eight hundred thousand and the government keep 1.2 or you shouldn't make you make two million and you get to keep one and the government keeps the other one no that's not true that's not right that's not how it works according to god's kingdom so personal thoughts here's some personal thoughts and i'm going to be done in the next 15 minutes here personal thoughts when you take away reward people will be less productive when you take away reward, people will be less productive. 
Again, I want you to view that in the light of tax the rich, lower taxes for middle and uh, uh, lower class, and use the money to boost spending in lower classes, raise minimum wage so that everyone can have equality in life, or free market competition, lower taxes on the upper class so they will invest in American business, thus providing jobs for Americans, no penalty for success through taxation, believe every American should own, invest, build, and prosper, companies should fail or succeed on on their actions and merits, not on the government intruding. The reality is, is when you take away reward from people, people will become less productive. There was an experiment that a college professor did where he said, we're going to have a test at the end of the week. And all of the little bookworms went and they studied, they studied, they studied, they spent hours reading, memorizing, reciting, and test time came. They took the test. Monday rolled around. And the professor said, you know what? I decided to to do something a little different. I decided to take the average grade, put all the tests together, take the average grade, and then just distribute the grade to every person in the class. Well, everybody that day got an 89. Well, let me tell you, the kids that were used to getting 99s weren't happy about it. The kids that were used to getting 99s got mad and said, I busted my butt and studied. I'm not happy with an 89. But the college kid that ate pizza and smoked pot all week that would have got a 35 on the test said, I got an 89. Woo! How great is that? Guess what? The college professor did it again the second week. But then people began to know this. Well, I don't have to study as hard because somebody's going to study hard for me and I'm going to reap the benefit. Guess what the average class grade was after that week? It had dropped down to a 70. Did it a third week, it had dropped all the way down to a 40 and everybody failed. To prove this point that those that were working hard when they got no reward, they said, what's the, what's the purpose of working hard if I don't get a reward then? When you take away reward from people, people will become less productive. I recently just uh, had a conversation with people that are teachers, and they went looking for jobs, and they're they're interviewing, they're talking to people, and and how it works in the education system is the longer that you're in the system, the higher pay that you receive. Well, they went to this one school that said, we cap off at 20 years. So after you work more than 20 years. If you work 35 years in the system, you won't get any higher pay grade or pay raise than those that work 20 years. Well, guys, let me tell you what they did. They said, hasta la vista, and they went to a different place that said, no, we actually compliment or we, we reward people that have been in the system for 30 years, for 35 years, that the longer that you're in, the more that we're going to value you. Amen. And that's exactly what happens in the American economy. When we are taxed for doing well, when you're taxed, when your business prospers in America, you know what you're going to do? You're going to go somewhere that that actually is beneficial, that gives you the reward. We're going to go put a factory in Mexico. We're going to go put a factory in South America. We're going to go outsource to China. Why? Because they don't take away from us from doing well. Amen. God is a rewarder. Say God is a rewarder. Is God, does he, does God take rewards away? Does God keep rewards from people? No. Hebrews eleven six says, it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and he rewards. Say he rewards. He rewards those who sincerely seek after 
him. God does not penalize people for doing well. God rewards those that do well. Hallelujah. That's how God is. That's who God is. God doesn't do the socialism thing. He rewards accordingly. I'm going to give you these last two points under this category. Write this down. Taxing people more for success is a design to keep people poor and dependent. Creating a system that says the more you make, the more you're going to get taxed keeps people from wanting to make more money. And then they start saying, well, if I actually get this raise, is it a good thing for me to take this raise? Because if I take this raise, it's going to put me into a different tax bracket. And if I go into that tax bracket, they're actually going to tax me more than I'm getting taxed right now. And so how is it that I could take a raise but still come out making less money even after taking a raise? Well, that's a corrupt system. Taxing people more for success is a design from the enemy to keep people poor and dependent. Why? Because they will actually want to make less. I'll tell you, we'll, we'll get into health care next week. And you guys are like, this is the strangest message I've ever heard preached in a church. Hopefully it's helping you kids because you're not going to learn this at school. We'll get into health care, but President Barack Obama instituted what was Obamacare. It was basically our attempt to make a, a national health care, providing affordable health care to everybody. It took free market competition off the table. It mandated one thing. Everybody had to go through this, this one kind of system and process. And I can tell you how corrupt it was because before me and my wife had this revelation, again, when we were starting out, we got into that system. We said, great. Man, we can get Blue Cross Blue Shield benefits for $200 a month. That sounds great to us. But what they actually started doing was using people's tax credits, saying you'll get no tax benefit or no tax refund, and what we'll do is we'll just basically we'll, uh, deduct the cost of your insurance every month, and you just won't get a tax return at the end of the year. But they said, here's the catch. If, if you sign up, when we look at your income and you make this amount of money, and so we give you this type of benefit at this type of price for your health insurance, and the end of that year comes and you make more money than what that paper said, then you're going to get penalized and you're going to have to pay it back. Well, guess what it kept me and my wife doing for about a year or so? We kept looking at that paper saying, man, you know what? If, if we end up go, you know, going to this level and making a, this amount of money, it's going to end up hurting us more so it's more beneficial for us to stay at this lower level. That's so demonic, corrupt, and twisted. Hallelujah. Taxing people more for success is a design to keep people poor and dependent upon the government. And this is the last point under this. Funding people in poverty who are capable of work simply breeds people to depend on the government. Funding people in poverty who are capable, say capable, of work, all it does is simply breeds people to depend on the government. Basically, it's the point. Why work when you don't have to? During COVID-19, they were paying so much for unemployment that most people said, why work when I can file unemployment and make more money getting paid through unemployment than I could going and getting a job? 
That's a problem. You know what it keeps people from doing? It keeps them from working because it's better for them to sit at home and do nothing and make more money doing nothing and let the rich be taxed and and let's just equally distribute everything. It's better for them to do that than to go out and put their hand to the plow and, and let God bless them. It keeps people in a corrupt Babylonian system and an antichrist system and a poverty system. Amen. You know, one of the worst things, I don't know exactly, I don't have the information, but one of the worst things that ever happened to the inner city is when legislation was passed that essentially began to pay women to have children and not be married. We're going to provide all these government assistance, all of these things to have children and to not be married. Again, I'm not condemning anything, but I'm going to tell you where a lot of people, I grew up in a town where you would actually see people rigging the system where you would have a man and a woman, they would live together for 10, 15, 12, you know, 20 years. They would call each other. Yep, that's my wife. That's my husband. And the guy would go out in the oil field and make $120,000 a year, and they'd have five children. But then on paper, she would claim single mother and receive food stamps, receive all these benefits from the government. And so there you go. You, they're living in the same house. They're coexisting. They're drawing from these two incomes. And it's, it's essentially all it is doing is Funding people in poverty who are capable of work simply breeds people to depend on the government. What did women actually start doing? What was the worst thing that ever happened in the black community in the inner city? Whenever women started realizing it's more beneficial for me to have these babies without a man in my life. So what did it do? It took fathers out of the homes. What happened? Prison rate skyrocketed. Violent crime skyrocketed. Little boys started growing up in gangs because they didn't have daddies in their homes being fathers and teaching them how to be men. It's a corrupt demonic system. And it's all setting the stage for Revelation chapter 13 where he requires everyone, small and great, rich or poor, free or slave, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. No one can buy or sell anything without the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number representing his name. It's basically a system that is just stepping stones, trying to get people completely dependent upon the government. Why? Because essentially a person won't bite the hand that feeds them. Oh, you tell me to take a vaccine that I don't know what's in it, but if I don't take it, then I could possibly lose all of my government benefits? Sure, I'll be the second person in line. I'll be there at 5.30 in the morning. Why? Because I won't bite the hand that feeds me. But for the believer, guess what? We're fed by the hand of God. (laughs) He's our source. He's our provider. That's why a believer that has revelation from the word of God is the most dangerous thing to the devil because we can look at the world and say, I don't need you. You need me. We could look at our government and our system and say, we don't need you at all. You could stop doing everything that you're doing tomorrow and we'll still prosper. Hallelujah. Let's finish this last point. Number three, I'm going to be done in six minutes. Number three, marriage. Say marriage. What is the democratic view of marriage? Basically, it's very simple. They support same-sex marriage. This is a traditional democratic view, at least it is now in the modern age. Maybe you said when I was a kid, 
it wasn't that way. Well, it is now. This is a traditional view. If you're on the left side, you support same-sex marriage. Republican. Republican Party traditionally does not recognize it or fights to it for it to not be recognized legally. So they say if you want to be in a relationship with a person of the same sex, what you do at your house is your business, but we don't have to recognize it legally. They fight for marriage to be constitutionally defined as one man and one woman. Republicans push for a, pushed for a new amendment to be added in 2004 that banned same-sex marriage. Their quote was, this is the only way to protect the status of marriage between a man and a woman. That was from the Republican president in 2004. Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, but I'll go ahead and tell you. What does the Bible say about Marriage. Let's ask this first question. Does the Bible define marriage? Yes, it does. In Genesis 2, 24, it says, This explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife. A man joined to a wife. A marriage, according to the Bible, is not two men. A marriage, according to the Bible, is not two women. It is a man and a woman. Hallelujah. And the two are united into one. Well, one of the points of the Republican Party is they wanted it constitutionally defined as a man or a woman. So what does that actually cover? That covers the gender issue. There's two genders. Let's ask this question. Does the Bible define gender? Yes, it does. In Genesis 5-2, he created them male and female. Male and female. Period. And he blessed them and called them human. The human species has two genders, male, female, nothing else. Gender is not whatever you make up in your head. Well, I'm going to create a new gender and I'm going to call it uh, 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 <laughs> supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. X, Y, Z. That's, that's my gender. That's what I identify as. Well, you're just living in a deception. The Bible defines the creator of heaven and earth who made the ground that you stand on said there's only two genders. It's a man and it's a woman, and marriage is between a man and a woman. So let's ask this question then. Does the Bible condone, and we're going to end with this, homosexuality. Does the Bible condone it? If you don't know what condone means, it just basically means does the Bible permit it? Does it say homosexuality is okay according to the Bible? Look what Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul said, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or abusive, or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Say sexual sin. So can I be a Christian and sleep around with whoever I want? What is sexual sin? Sexual sin can be defined as fornification. What is that? Having sex with somebody you're not married to. You say, well, I'm a man, I'm a... Uh, Sleeping with somebody you're not in covenant before God with is sexual sin. Now, let me say this. 
What do you do? You say, well, I was far from God. I wasn't saved. I wasn't living for the Lord. Well, you can repent and your sins can be forgiven. But can we tell you, after you repent, you cannot continue to go around sleeping with people. Can you be a homosexual and repent and go to heaven and be received by the Lord? Absolutely. But you cannot repent and then continue to be in a homosexual relationship. People don't want to address these issues. Pastors don't want to address. If I had two women that came into the church tomorrow and nailed their knees down at that cross and repented and they were in a, in a marriage, I would tell them, tomorrow you file for divorce. This is not a marriage. This is not recognized by the Lord. You separate. Because you cannot continue in that. It says, some of you were once like that. Say, I was once like that. But you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hallelujah. I once did those things, but I don't do those things anymore. I'm cleansed, I'm washed, I'm purified by the blood of Jesus. You know, the, the progressive Christians, what they'll say when this verse is quoted, it's, it's just mind-blowing. They'll say that word homosexual, they'll say two things. Number one, that word homosexual, it didn't mean a man and a man, a woman and a woman, it actually meant pedophilia, which is basically an adult having sexual relations with a child. And so it says, the Bible never says the word homosexual. Uh, homosexual. In fact, that Greek word, it actually just means pedophilia. So the Bible condemns being a pedophile. That says that a pedophilia or pedophiles will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's what they'll say, number one. Or number two, another group of progressive, uh, progressive Christians will say, this is how far they have to stretch, guys. We don't believe that Paul's writings are the words of God. We believe that they're inspired by God, but they are not the words of God. That's the extent they have to go to because the Bible is so black and white in plain English of what it says. Well, we're, we can't deny that it says that, so what do we have to do? We have to somehow, some way, create some idea that this is not actually the inspired words of God, so therefore we don't have to adhere to it as the word of God. Okay, so they'll say the word homosexual has never been used in the Bible. Okay, well then let's look at Romans chapter 1. If you say that word, that Greek word, it doesn't mean what we think it means. It means something different. Well, in Romans chapter 1, I'm going to end with this, 21 through 27. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Look at this. Even women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And men, instead of normal sexual relations with women, it says, burned with lust for each other. Men did shame, shameful things with other men, and as a result of their sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. 
So if the Bible doesn't clearly use the word homosexuality in the Greek, it clearly defines the action of homosexuality as being condemned and not approved by God. Can somebody say amen? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. So I'm going to end with that tonight. If you guys will, let me just pray a blessing over you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I want to tell you, if, if your heart needs to be made right with God, I can lay hands on you. You can get healed of sickness. I can lay hands on you. I can cast out a demon. But there's only two people that can make your heart right with God. It's you and it's God. It's you and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you, if, you're, if you say, man, I'm far from the Lord and you want help, I want you to come up to me after service. We can pray, to, pray with one another. You say, I'd like to repent. I'd like to be made right with the Lord. I know that I need to be, but I don't know how to do that. In and of myself, I need some guidance and assistance. We can do that together. But I want to challenge you to take this word and ask the Lord, Lord, are there things that I need to refine in my heart? Are there things that need to be purged? Are there ideas? Are there thoughts? Are there things that I've subscribed to that your word explicitly says otherwise? Father, I thank you for the power of the Holy Ghost. Lord, I pray a blessing over these people that they came into this service and they heard the word of the Lord and none of them left offended. They sat through the whole entire thing. And Lord, there's a blessing for hearing your word and receiving it. I thank you, Lord, that the blessing of the Lord resides on their life, and it brings prosperity, it brings multiplication, and it brings increase in every way in the mighty name of Jesus. And I curse every devil of hell against them. If there's anybody in this system, in this Babylonian Antichrist system that's been suppressed, that's been living not in victory but as a, as a victim, not in victory, that today they get the reality that you have transferred them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light of your dear son. And I thank you, Lord, for dominion on this earth in the mighty name of Jesus. You are our provider. You are our healer. You are our sustainer. And we thank you for never-ending miracles coming to pass. In Jesus' name. Y'all just give the Lord a shout of praise if you receive that tonight. Hallelujah. Lord, bless them for being hearers of the word in Jesus' name. If you would like to sow a seed or partner with this work that the Lord is doing, check out the description of this podcast or go to www.rhctx.com forward slash give. You can find all the ways to give on that page. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. Until next time, this is John Wallace.